Friends, our text this morning as we hear from the living God and his word is 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 35, and I'd ask you to please stay there in your Bibles this morning if you would, because the living God has much to say to us this morning from this chapter, but it's not easy going. David, in all honesty, in some ways, I don't even know if I have to preach after that reading. Thank you for the way you drew out so much of what we'll see here in this text. We end chapter 15 of 1 Samuel in Gilgal. Before Saul and Samuel part ways for good. We've been in Gilgal before. Back in chapter 12, for those of you who've been here through the last several weeks of 1 Samuel, you know we were in Gilgal and we saw the covenant renewal, the inauguration of Saul's reign as king. And it was clear from the start what was required. So look back, if you would, at chapter 12, verse 13, where the prophet Samuel is addressing the people. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, Samuel says, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice. And the Hebrew there is a form of the words Shema Bekol. Literally, listen to the sound, hear the sound. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and hear his sound and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, if you will not shema bechol, if you will not hear the sound of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. That was chapter 12. At the start, and we're three chapters down the road now, and nothing's changed. This is still the central issue. This is still what Saul must do. Chapter 15, where we are this morning, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. It shouldn't surprise us that what Samuel says there is literally, now therefore, Shema Bekol, listen to the sound. Listen to the sound of the words of the Lord. Or in other words, obey his voice. That is the covenant king's first priority. That's what matters for kingship in Israel. And chapter 15 is intended to make clear that this is precisely what Saul did not do. The main narrative point of chapter 15 isn't complicated. 
It's stated in the end of verse 23 of our chapter when Samuel says to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. It started in Gilgal and it will end in Gilgal. Chapter 15 is designed to make one thing very clear. Saul's failure as Israel's king consisted in his disobedience, in his not hearing, literally, not hearing the words of the Lord. Another will be chosen. We don't know when exactly the events of chapter 15 took place. It would have been after the events of chapter 13, for sure, since it was in chapter 13 where we read about the rejection of Saul's future lineage. But the fact that the summary of Saul's life is at the end of chapter 14, only then to be followed by this detailed account we read today, means, I think, that the narrator means in putting it together this way to say that it's this incident in chapter 15 that above all others, find Saul's kingship. That if you want to understand Saul, the one incident you must comprehend is that of chapter 15. But the likely problem for us isn't so much in seeing the narrative point of the chapter. The problem we likely have is with the words of the Lord themselves in verses 2 and 3. Look there at the text. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did in Israel, to Israel, in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go, Saul, and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That was the word of the Lord of hosts that Saul was to hear, to listen to, to obey. Which means that the problem you and I likely have isn't in Saul's failure to obey the Lord's command. The problem we likely have is in what the Lord commanded. Because it sounds horrid. Because it is horrid. But let me make a basic observation here, which is that the problem we likely have with this isn't the problem Saul had, right? Saul didn't object in principle to what the Lord commanded. Saul failed to carry out the command of the Lord, but for other reasons. Saul did not seem to have a moral objection to the command itself. In fact, if anything, he and his men killed everyone except the person we might have been okay with him killing. Which means that while I recognize I need to talk about the command given Saul here, in doing so, I want to say I'm not actually addressing the concerns of 1 Samuel 15 when I do so. 
nonetheless, I think it's required. So let me give a, a brief go at this. What's often referred to as holy war, though the Bible never calls it that, is the subject, as you probably know, of entire books and lectures that you could take time to look at. And of course, if you did so, you'd find that there's many competing views as to how to deal with this as a moral question. But let's first make sure we know something of the historical context of what happens here in 1 Samuel 15. Amalek. Who is that? Amalek was a grandson of Esau, going way back into Genesis for a moment. And Amalek's descendants, who are then referred to in the Bible just as Amalek or as the Amalekites, had a long history of violent hostility toward Israel. They were the first human threat to the Israelites after the Exodus. In fact, if you want to jot this down, you can read about that in Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. And it was on that occasion in Exodus 17 that God told Moses to write down this promise in verse 14 of Exodus 17. The Lord said to Moses, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And then jumping from Exodus 17, it's in Deuteronomy 25, Deuteronomy 25 verses 17 to 19, where we learn a little more about what happened. This is Moses reminding the Israelites about this some 40 years later in Deuteronomy 25 verse 17, because it had been a particularly egregious attack. Moses says, Deuteronomy 25, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. In other words, the Amalekites had attacked the weakest members of Israel that day, right? Therefore, Moses goes on, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. We know then from the book of Judges at several points that hostilities from Amalek had continued after Israel was had entered Canaan. The situation was the same. The Amalekites were bent on destroying Israel, and now the time had come for the Lord's promise to be fulfilled. Saul had been chosen as an instrument in the Lord's hand to bring his judgment, the Lord's judgment, on Amalek. And that's the point I'm going to emphasize here. Though there's a lot more that could be said, and I don't imagine that my brief attempt at this will satisfy all of your questions, but what I want to emphasize is that the scriptures are clear that what's being commanded of Saul here is an act of divine judgment. It is vengeance. But not Israel's vengeance, exactly, you see, but the Lord's vengeance. 
This happens at God's command. The Amalekites had attempted to prevent Israel from entering Sinai, where Israel was to enter into covenant with the Lord and be established as his covenant people, which means that theirs was an act that would challenge God's redemptive purposes, you see. So that Moses says in Exodus 17, verse 16, that it is the Lord who would have war with Amalek generation to generation. Not Israel. It's the Lord. All of which I point out to make a basic point that the scriptures make all over the place and of which I was reminded this week in wrestling with what to say to you from this text. And what I point out is that from the scriptural perspective, it is precisely in God's judgment and often God's vengeance, the scriptures don't shy away from that word, that God's people find comfort. The Lord does not forget how his enemies have hated and trampled and crushed his people. To put it simply, no vengeance on God's enemies would mean no deliverance for God's people. Isaiah 35, several scriptures I want to read for you. Isaiah 35, where in verse 2, the prophet talks about seeing the glory of the Lord, seeing the majesty of our God, then goes on in verse 3 of Isaiah 35 to say this, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Do you hear that? There is always a connection between salvation and judgment, friends. They are the flip sides of the same coin. You do not have the full gospel unless you have both. Isaiah chapter 61, this is the passage that Jesus quotes at the beginning of his ministry, remember? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah 61, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's one side of it, right? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and what? The day of vengeance of our God. His people enjoy his favor. His enemies receive his vengeance. What are the martyred saints praying in Revelation chapter 6? Do you remember this text? Revelation 6 verse 9. John writes, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, Lord of hosts. Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
and look at I, I want to make connections quickly here if I can. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. In Acts 10 verse 42, Peter says of that Christ, that anointed one, that king, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17 verse 31 says, the day has been set when that judgment will take place. And listen, I read this as if for the first time this week to what Paul writes about that day in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 5. This is evidence, he says, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, verse 6, since indeed... God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Stop there. Do you hear that? God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's Paul. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when, notice when this happens now, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Revelation 20 verses 11 and following describe that day, don't they? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now here's where I come out on 1 Samuel 15 and other passages like it on this question. And I know I haven't fully developed this. And I'm giving you lots of passages and I'm putting together thoughts without telling you precisely what they are. But from the perspective of the whole Bible, I think we can understand Saul's mission to judge the Amalekites as horrible as it is. We can understand it 
as an anticipation of the judgment that will finally come on the whole world when God's anointed king is revealed. And I think that when we see the sweep of God's judgments through history together with the final judgment on the day of the Lord, I'm convinced we will say in the words of Genesis 18 verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. But now, having said all that, there is still a crucial point to be made, dear friends, and it is this, and it is crucial. You and I are not living in the time of the Old Testament. When God's judgment was often brought on individuals and nations by war and other acts of physical violence. And the reason I went through some of those New Testament passages is to make clear that now the reality of divine judgment hasn't changed. But it is the death and the resurrection of Jesus that announces that judgment to the whole world. Holy war was never the norm, even in the Old Testament. But clearly you and I live in a time, according to the Bible, when it is not up to us to repay anyone evil for evil. Listen to Paul make this point using Old Testament language in Romans 12, verse 17 and following. Repay no one evil for evil, Paul says. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now listen to how Paul applies that. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I know that that leaves a number of questions unanswered. I'm well aware of the questions that I'm leaving unanswered, but we'll have to leave it at that because I've just spent the better part of my whole sermon time addressing something that 1 Samuel 15 doesn't address. Which means that you'll have to be patient and we'll have to be rather selective now regarding what we look at, won't we? But I thought it was important. Because I want you to see that there are connections to be made over the scope of the entire scriptures in this regard. That there's continuity and discontinuity in how we understand a passage like the beginning of 1 Samuel 15. And I thought it mattered because now I think you can see all the more clearly the seriousness of what Paul is being commanded. That this is the judgment of the Lord. And that that's precisely what Saul gets wrong. It's not about him. It's about the Lord. 
Saul is to hear the words of the Lord, but verse 9 of our passage says, if you can turn your minds now back to 1 Samuel 15, that Saul failed. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fattened calves and of the lambs, and all that was good. All that was good. And they would not utterly destroy them. Note that language. They would not do what the Lord had said. Why? Well, we don't know why yet, but we're going to find out. The first scene of our chapter then finishes with the word of the Lord coming to Samuel in verse 10. And the Lord then says in verse 11, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night, the text says. From which point then in the second scene in verses 12 to 35, the rest of the chapter, I think the narrative focuses in on the sin of Saul and the way that that sin then impacts two people. And there's a lot going on, but I think the focus is on how this sin deceives Saul and how it grieves the Lord how sin deceives Saul and grieves the Lord. And I'm just going to make brief comments. In retrospect, I wish I'd made this two sermons. Firstly, sin deceives Saul. And of course, the point is it can similarly deceive us as well, right? The Lord had spoken to Samuel in verse 11, and then in verse 12, Samuel went to find Saul. And look there, it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And right there we see the whole problem, don't we? Saul had set up a monument for himself. Presumably to commemorate his great victory over the Amalekites. Which given everything, I took a half an hour to tell you about the purposes of the command given him by the Lord there is a gross misunderstanding of what's just happened here, isn't it? And this is serious stuff. And here's Samuel having been up all night in anger and crying out to the Lord, I think for the Lord to have mercy on Saul is my view. Only then to hear about this self-aggrandizing monument. And then when he finally finds him, what does Saul say? Verse 13, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Oh, really? Isn't the upfront proclamation of your righteousness just a little suspect? Can you imagine how these words sound to Samuel? Who's just heard the opposite from the Lord himself. And it's all in the details that David brought out so beautifully in the reading. It's in the deceitfulness of sin. Samuel asks him about the sound of the sheep and the oxen. And Saul says, verse 15, they brought them up. They brought them up from the Amalekites, Samuel. The people spared the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. It's not what the text told us had happened back in verse 9, where it says that Saul and the people spared Agag and the sheep and the oxen and the calves. In fact, the verb spared in verse 9 is singular, suggesting in Hebrew that Saul's the principal actor. The troops are only accessories. But in Saul's wording, it's they who brought them. It was the people. Oh, and they had a noble motive too, Samuel. I mean, it might have been wrong, but they meant well, Samuel. 
course, notice how then it was we who devoted the rest to destruction as instructed. Saul goes ahead and includes himself in that part, which means Saul tried to shift the blame, play down the wrongness of what happened, and then take credit for the part that was obedient. Any of that sound familiar, friends? It is the deceitfulness of sin. And we all know the patterns, don't we, from our own hearts, if we're honest. But here's the scary part. You notice that Saul lets slip what's really going on in how he talks about the Lord. Look again there at verse 15. The people spared the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, Samuel. Your God. Saul's words betray his separation from the God whose voice he was meant to be hearing. Remember, that's the theme, which of course then matches what the Lord had said in verse 11. He has turned back from following me. So we're not too surprised, are we, with how the rest of this goes. There's back and forth between Samuel and Saul, and Samuel comes right out and says it in verse 19. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And the you there is singular. Saul tried to blame the people. Samuel knows what's going on. Saul then repeats his basic defense, slipping there into verse 20, just slipping in that he brought Agag, the king of Amalek, probably as a trophy of war to parade him around, though Saul doesn't say that part here. And so Samuel goes to the verdict in verses 22 and 23. And in Hebrew, you see how it's sort of indented in the text there. It's in poetry, which means that it is being differentiated from the text because this is the emphasis all to highlight the significance, the heart of the matter, friends. Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And we're right there now at the heart of biblical faith, aren't we? Our response to the God who has spoken Believing God's promises, obeying his commands, they're so closely tied together as to be inseparable. The obedience of faith the Lord's looking for. It's the hearing of faith, if you will. Referring back a few months to our study in Galatians. It must be what is in our hearts. And the point of this whole section of 1 Samuel is that Saul didn't have it. And then we come to the cycles of Saul's appeals and Samuel's responses. And the details are tricky, but the bottom line is the deceitfulness of sin continues because we're left at the end of it wondering if Saul's repentance ever was repentance at all. In verse 24, he acknowledges his sin in an about face, but then qualifies that acknowledgement by saying, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. The exact opposite of what he'd been told in chapter 12, the king must do which is to fear the Lord and obey his voice. And then the request for Samuel to accompany him, to bow before the Lord. Well, we see more clearly what that's about in verse 30, I think, when Saul says again, I have sinned, and then follows that with the direct request for Samuel to yet honor me now. 
before the leaders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Honor me before my people? That's not right. Remember verse 1, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Samuel said, Saul doesn't see it that way, evidently. And then there it is again, that I may bow before the Lord your God, Samuel. It would seem that for the sake of his own glory, Saul wanted to bow with Samuel before Samuel's God, before the elders of his, as Saul's, people. Sin has thoroughly deceived Saul. He has utterly failed to be the king described in verse 1 of chapter 15. All of which leaves us then with the Lord's response to all of this, right? It's the very last sentence of the chapter. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is a big deal, but we have no time, so forgive me for only touching it, but it's the same meaning as we find in verse 11, right? Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, the Lord said to Samuel. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Regret. Some versions say repent in those two places. The NIV says grieved. And I'm inclined to think they've got it, actually, in those instances. Because it feels surprising, doesn't it? To read that the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, whose wisdom is unsearchable, who knows the end from the beginning, regrets, repents, is sorry that he made Saul king. That verb with God as the subject, occurs 29 times in the Old Testament. It never is without some emotional element. But it's Genesis 6, verse 6, where we see it the most clearly. The first occurrence of that verb in the Old Testament, just before the flood, where the text reads, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And it's that connection that I think is significant and maybe that surprises us here. Do you sense the intensity of divine sorrow over human sin? Brothers and sisters, I think verse 11 and verse 35 of our passage should remind us that it is a tragedy when Saul refuses to be Yahweh's disciple. Samuel gets that, right? Verse 35 says, Samuel grieved over Saul. Those two verses, I think, are expressions of the Lord's sorrow over sin, his grief over lack of obedience. And that's significant. As one commentator puts it, we need to know that the God of the Bible is no cold slab of concrete, impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. All of which brings us in the end to verse 29 as we anticipate next week in chapter 16. Because that same regret verb shows up there in verse 29, doesn't it? Only it feels different. 
Samuel's robe is torn by Saul and Samuel says in verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That'd be David, right? We meet him next week. Then verse 29, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Meaning what? It's the same Hebrew verb, but Hebrew verbs can have a range of meaning. And I think here the verb means that the everlasting one of Israel doesn't play games. He doesn't vacillate in his purposes like men do. This chapter is making clear that Yahweh has torn the kingdom from Saul, and that's definite. And we know why. So what are we to take away now? from verse 29 in conjunction with verses 11 and 35 using this same verb. I love what one commentator concludes as we finish. The paradox tends to split our minds, but a little thought tells us that this God who repents and does not repent is the only God we can serve. Only in the consistent God of verse 29 and in the sorrowful God of verse 35 do we find the God worthy of praise? Here is a God who's neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. I find that thought deeply moving. Saul's sin has grieved the Lord even as it has led him to reject the chosen one. Next week, he reveals a new choice. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, he'll be the one for whom the Lord will never repent. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.